It is a minute early. A minute early. Is that on? No. All right, now that's on? Yes. Yes, okay, good. So tonight what I want to just uh, reflect a bit about is something that's been becoming more alive for me in the last few years, more like a a realization for me about the way that everything the Buddha taught, as far as I can tell, all the different aspects that make up all the different teachings all come from the same, heading toward the same place of purifying the heart and mind from the habits of greed, of confusion, of delusion. And I want to just talk about some different ways of that tonight, ways that you all know, that we all know, But sometimes, I know for me, and in talking to people here, we're in a retreat, and we can get, one can get, uh, so kind of mm, pulled into whatever technique you're trying to do, or whatever idea we have about nibbana or bust, and how to get there, and if you can't do what you think is supposed to be happening, you go to some lesser practice, but it doesn't count, because you're just marking time, because you're not really doing the big, you know, heading for the big end. And so, what I really want to talk about, in a way that's really inspired me these last few years, is that I, I feel once we start to understand the depth of how subtle and strong these habits of the torments are, but how in any particular moment they can be gone and all the different ways of purifying. It it stops being about retreat and it's so clear that everything we do in our life is part of this practice. Not that I pretend to be able in one talk to talk about everything we do in our life, but just to point in that direction. Okay, so what is this noble truth of the ending of suffering? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It's abandonment, liberation and detachment from it. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. So I just bring that up. I want to use that as a kind of reference, a pointer tonight, not to, there's different ways one can think about Nibbana, all of which are essentially wrong and useless, but (laughs) we have to talk. Well, I have to talk, you have to listen. And this way of looking at it, I've found really helpful rather than some state we're trying to construct the conditions to get to and then it's all okay for the rest of our life. Um, It's the sense of a moment or increasing moments where greed, hatred, confusion is not present in that moment of consciousness, in that moment of citta. So it's not a state at all that we're something to trying to get to, but immediately, here and now, that's all there ever is. What's the quality? in this moment of the mind, the heart. As Buddha Dasa said, Nibbana is a natural condition. It's the cool state of mind without kalesha, without torments, defilements, whatever word you want to use. The fewer the defilements, the more coolness there is. So one way talking about Nibbana is like the complete extinction But another way, which is accessible to us here and now, moment to moment, is to, not to begin to, but to trust more, to recognize more the moments of the heart and mind that's cool, that moments that it is free from kalatia. Start to get a taste of that. Start to recognize it. As um, Andy Olinsky puts it very succinctly, The mind is not a steady state, it's not a subject that has objects 
as contents. But the mind is activity, the process of cognizing a flow of events. Activity, the events are changing from moment to moment, the action of cognizing the everything is changing from moment to moment. That's what makes freedom possible, but that's what makes it possible. The mind is changing from moment to moment. So we can really recognize and explore both the moments that there is this coolness that the heart-mind is free from the torments, and also the moments when it's not. And so our whole life, our whole practice can become a really a, not about hating the torments and trying to get somewhere else, but really getting interested in exploring, you know, how do the torments arise? What is it like when they're not there? What feeds them? How do they starve? How do they work? As Sayadaw Tejaniya says, you know, how do they do their job? We just want to explore. How does craving do its job? How does aversion do its job? How does metta do its job? None of it's personal. So in any particular moment, cessation of clinging is available. The next moment, it may not be available anymore. This is the Dalai Lama. When the mind is free of negative emotions and tendencies, in other words, the three roots of confusion, it understands and knows all phenomena. It is only because there are obscuring veils between the mind and its object that we are unable to know all things. Once these veils have been removed, no new power is needed. Seeing and being aware is the nature of the mind itself. As long as the mind exists, it has the ability to know, but this ability does not reveal itself until obscurations have been removed. This is what it means to attain enlightenment. So, as far as I can tell, all the different things that the Buddha talked about, all the ways of meditation practice, dana, sila, bhavana, all the aspects are different ways, different methods, different conditions for recognizing when the heart-mind is obscured, and cultivating, shifting those habits. Because they're just habits, right? Since the mind is changing every moment, the habits of greed, of aversion, of delusion are really deeply rooted. And and if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the sutta of the two darts, how the habit of uh, resistance to the unpleasant is so strong. A lot of you have seen this, and immediately the mind craves the pleasant and ignores the neutral. And a lot of you have been noticing and talking about that. Often, then there comes a sense of dismay. Oh my gosh, there's so much aversion. I, it's usually, I have so much aversion. I am so deluded. You know, there's so much craving in my mind, and we remind you. If the Buddha chose craving as the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, you're probably not the only one (laughs) who's experiencing frequent moments of craving arising in the mind, right? But so what we're here to do, though, is to actually get really interested in exploring. There is a moment of craving. It doesn't mean it's steady state. So mindfulness is, of course, always the the first line of support for purifying. Just the interest to notice craving, for example, is already a shift from identifying, from being lost in it, which we've talked about that a lot. But all of these teachings, all the way we live our life, gives us all these different tools to help us recognize what habits are arising right now. And if they're torments, leading to unwholesome thought, speech, and action, then there's all these different tools to help us strengthen the wholesome, starve these unwholesome habits. But the only way that can go about 
is not from aversion or clinging, but from this um, wise attitude, from interest, from really wanting to understand. So really, to, to what I just really want to encourage, <clears throat> really this whole retreat I've wanted to encourage, is to have that sense of not taking it personally when you notice how these torments are arising and how they might uh, lead to thought, speech, and action. Because as soon as you take it personally, we're stuck, we're caught, we're feeding it. It's just as soon. But when you start to just look at it and see, that's that step, you know, that Tai Chi move, the way Ajahn Sumedho talks about, oh, it's like this. That can be the difference of night and day in beginning to explore and understand and shift the way the habits of mind work. So what I think, for me, what it's taken is some more and more understanding of this, less thinking I have to have a really good meditation and get to, you know, otherwise it's impossible, but starting to appreciate from whatever space I'm in, whatever the quality of mind, if there's Kalesha present, but whatever quality they're really concentrated or scattered all over the place, quiet and subtle as in retreat or in a really busy experience in life, there are tools available to really continue to work to purify, to shift these habits. And it takes a a trust and an interest, a sense of really thinking, you know, this is about our whole life. There's not some piece of our life it's not about. And there's not some piece of our life that is impossible to notice what's going on in our mind. Maybe not in the incredible subtle way when a lot of you are getting quiet. You can notice, for example, the seven factors of awakening and kind of feel how they are and when they're balancing. Sometimes. And then that changes. Why does it change? Because every moment of mind is changing. (laughs) It's always going to be that way. But that's a subtle kind of awareness. But just walking through life, walking down a busy city street with all kind of things happening and you're thinking about the, the, you're going to work and you're late. That doesn't matter. Just noticing the quality of mind right then, it doesn't take a huge concentration. It doesn't take effort. It just takes remembering. Walking down the street, noticing rushing. Okay, how hard is that? Noticing rushing, you don't have to then get out your list and go, is that one of the kalashas? Um, what do I do about it? <laughs> you know, just right there, you're present with it. You can feel, you know, the imbalance of the rush. You just notice it. You just notice it. That kind of noticing can follow us through our life more and more, and then we can begin to more consciously bring in any of the tools that, that pop up to us. So first it's just getting really, having some trust, having some interest, not taking it so personally. But really, well, for me, the more I practice, the more I respect the, um, the subtlety and the power of the habits of the torments. But as Joseph always says, I'd rather see one arising in my mind heart than not see it. Because not seeing it is when you really don't know how our mind works. Some of you have said here, there's a question the other day about being really mindful and being really careful, and all of a sudden you do something that's not careful. Or all of a sudden you've been really mindful, someone told me, not this retreat, they were really mindful, not craving, really watching their eating, walking, they they were in eight precepts, I guess, and walking past, the table, really, really mindful, and all of a sudden their hands shot out and grabbed some orange and kept on going. (laughs) Who did that? (laughs) That wasn't me, you know. (laughs) That, you know, (laughs) we don't know what's sitting down in there sometime. (laughs) But really, I've told this before, but this had a really um, deep effect on me in my life. In, In terms of uh, once again, deepening my, my respect for the power of, of the torments when we don't see them, but also somehow this really strengthened my faith, my confidence, my willingness to keep exploring no matter what. I don't know why that's how it worked. But I was in, um, in Munich one summer, and so I went to visit Dachau, one of the um, 
concentration camps, one of the, I guess one of the smaller ones. Anyway, it's just outside of Munich. So I went by myself one afternoon. And, um, you know, it was set up in a really interesting way, like a museum, you know. So this is what I remember. It's been a while now, so I don't totally trust memory. If you go and you say, that's not how she said it was. That's just because memory's unreliable. But this is what I remember and the effect it had. So you go in the, different, in the different rooms or the different barracks or whatever, and there were lots of um, big posters, kind of notice boards describing different aspects of the people who were incarcerated there, of things that went on, of people outside who had, you know, maybe the guards or the people in the village who brought in the bread or some of the doctors who worked in the in the place and did experiments, or some of the people in the place who did wonderful things, some of the people who were incarcerated who did terrible things. And the, the sense I got, because they would talk about it and then they would give examples or like a, a photo of a real person and give their little story, so it made it real. And of course the vastness of it, knowing that's just one place, and the sense of, of you know, Normal people, that's the thing. The people who were in the concentration camp, the people who were running it, the, all the villagers around, everyone who's involved in one way or another. It, it took away, you know, any kind of sense I could have of, you know, we like to make up, well, it's all these bad, evil people do the bad, evil stuff and everyone else, we're just good people. You know, I would never act like that. And walking through it, I thought, wow. So many people, and that's just one country at one time. We don't have to go through a history of even the 20th century of the amount of horrific, horrific things that human beings do to each other and genocides and racism and wars and cultural cleansing and on and on. That so many people, each individual person involved, all the people doing that can't be some kind of evil monsters. It's impossible. It's people. So walking through it, what I really got for myself was this sense, and this is why it's weird that this was inspiring to me, but it was, this sense of, you know, I don't know. If I were in a position where my family were threatened, or if I were in a position where I was threatened with torture or something, I don't know what I would do. I've never been in that situation. And so it it just... It helped me see in some way that until I, if I don't really know the quality in my own mind and heart, what's coming up in this moment, not how I think I'm going to be or how I think I should be or what my idea is of what's right, but if I don't know how to really be present with the suffering that comes in my mind, to really see even in the little times... When the, when the torments come up and when they don't, how to work with them, how to not feed them, how to move in another direction. You know, if I don't really take that in as the work of my whole life, you know, of every moment, who knows what I would do in a situation that I could never imagine being in, you know, those, just those sudden moments. So that somehow inspired me a lot. It's given me, so that was a few years ago, not so long ago, but it's given, it it keeps reminding me when I think, you know, this is good enough, you know, okay, it's good enough, there's not so much craving right now, this feels good enough, you know, keep looking, Carol, keep looking. It's maybe good enough in this moment, but good enough isn't completely liberated. But that's not trying to go somewhere else, that's just looking right here. We never know. I was listening to the public radio a couple years ago. It came in in the middle of an interview, so I actually don't know who was speaking, their names. But there's two men, and they were discussing work that they were doing with young men in prisons in the States. And their work was called Interrupting Violence. But all I heard was they, they quoted one of the young men in prison for life, I think, that they were working with. And he said, this young man, I wish that I could take back that three to five seconds of my life when I reacted in this violent way in a situation and that completely ruined someone else's life and ruined his life. But to me, that 
I still kind of get chills from that, that three to five seconds when we just lose it. And so if we don't really know our mind, if we don't know how to be with our mind, if we don't really, you know, take it, and this is out of love for ourselves in the world, not out of fear, not out of, you know, aversion, but really out of, wow, this is how we can bring freedom and compassion to our own heart and mind and to everyone we come in contact in the world start right here, right now. Why there's so much emphasis on recognizing the presence of the torments. I don't really like the word defilement, but I might keep using calatious. I like that. Screed, hatred, delusion. Recognizing their presence, recognizing how they act, recognizing their absence. Like I said at the beginning, it's equally, if even more important, to recognize just the simple moments when the heart-mind, as Buddha Dasa said, is cool. Cool from the absence of kalatia. Again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Buddha Dasa, where he says, you know, like everything, kalatias are conditioned. They come together due to conditions, and anything that comes together goes apart when the conditions change. So a lot of what we're learning is what conditions give rise to the kalashas in our experience. What conditions starve them? So certainly that's what we're doing in the meditation. And that's a, a major piece, but it's not the only piece. So seeing how they do their job. This is really a profound aspiration. So again, I just want to remind us we need wise attitude to watch these. When we start falling into this sense of despair that there's so much, these habits are so deep, that despair is simply another way that aversion is doing its job, making you feel like crap. That's its job. (laughs) So then we just have to notice again. Notice again. You kind of like pull up your socks and notice again. (laughs) Don't let yourself fall into it. It's just the calaceous obscuring, obscuring the radiant mind, the radiant heart. But that radiance is not gone, it's just obscured. The more even just little moments of coolness that you notice, moments when, whatever, you're sitting here and you're struggling with something or you're just bored or you're feeling your breath but nothing special and suddenly there's no big deal. There's suddenly no big deal. I'm not talking about suddenly the lights go on and everything explodes and you're like, you know, floating in Nibbana. I'm talking about there's just a moment of coolness, free from kalatia. No neon lights. You, you probably didn't have time to think it's neutral and I'm bored. That's the next moment when it's gone. But the moment, oh yeah, it's just like this. Notice that. Not cling to it, that'll come next and then it's gone too. But notice, just notice it. Because it's, uh, this is where the, the real sada, the confidence, the faith comes that, oh yes, this isn't some fairy story. The purity of heart and mind, that ease, that peace, that's actually, as Buddha Dasa says, it's accessible in a moment. Just a moment of non-clinging, that's all it is. So noticing those, and that gives the faith to again notice when the clinging comes in. So I want to talk about three ways that's called the three rounds of kalatia. So three aspects of our practice, by practice now I'm meaning our whole life, that we can um, work with is is in in the commentaries. So the first, they like the three, three different levels of strength, of intensity that these kalashas are showing up in our mind, in our heart. So the first round is called the, the kalashas of transgression. So you can guess what that means. That greed or hatred confusion is so strong that we speak and act from it, right? So actions of speech and body motiv- motivated by greed, hatred, confusion. And the protection from that, what helps to purify that, is sila, is our commitment to non-harming conduct, to restraint, 
And I, I think, you know, we talk about the power of sila, the power of virtue of non-harming conduct. And the, the, I think sometimes I hadn't always appreciated the purifying power of wholesome restraint, you know? So when a, a, un, a kalatia comes up in your mind of thought and you don't speak from it and you don't act from it, Notice the wholesomeness of that rather than berating yourself for having had the kalatia arise, right? Oh, no, I'm being so angry. But you didn't go yell at the person, did you? You kept your mouth shut. That's wholesome restraint. We beg you. We hope you did. That's wholesome (laughs) restraint. You didn't act on it. That's wholesome restraint. This is really a huge protection, only protecting us, but the rest of the world, of course. But it's also, and this is the part I wanted to point out, the, it's also weakening at that time the power of the strength, the intensity of the kalatia. The more we practice wholesome restraint of speech and action, the easier it gets, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? Because the, the power of that habit, that kalatia habit, is, is weakening. It's not as strong. And sometimes, especially on retreat, we just notice that it keeps coming. We think it should, you know, I restrained already, it shouldn't come back anymore. And we don't really notice that it's weakening. So here is kind of subtle, but it's great to explore. And um, um, this isn't news, but just to say, for example, of course, when we act from unwholesome speech or action, you know, we feel bad, the person feels bad, and it feeds, it strengthens the habit of that kalatia in the mind to keep on going. I was looking at some, some notes from a, a talk I gave some, like a long time ago, but something about this. And there's an example that I guess had just happened that week. It must have been a long time ago because it was about calling my parents and they've been dead for quite a while. But anyway, so I, I noticed I had uh, felt aversion, some kind of anxiety, not like aversion to them, but worry, anxiety, negativity, not without awareness. You know, when there's awareness of the kalatia, that's already our first protection, but without awareness. So I called them up. So the aversion, the anxiety was in my voice, was in the way I talked to them. So I got, so then they got all reactive and anxious and worried about their condition. It was a time when, when they weren't so healthy. So then in our dialogue, in our communication, since I was anxious and negative, and then they got more anxious and negative, so then I got more anxious and negative about them. Then we hung up, we were all more anxious and negative, and then I talked to my sister, and I brought that into it, and the whole thing just kept spiraling, spiraling, you know. So this isn't like aggressive, horrible, but this is still dosa. This is still aversion, and when we're not aware, it's just what happens when we act it out. It's contagious. But you know what wholesome qualities of heart and mind, as we see, are also contagious, aren't they? So just that sense of sometimes when, you know, when we're, teachers are all together, all, you, you probably hear what a racket it is in there in the, in the staff dining room sometimes. I mean, there's so much noise and everyone's talking and all at once and with a lot of energy. And I can get quite inspired when someone of us starts to say something and then just stops. And you can see, that was a wise speech moment. You know? <laughs> like, oh, wise speech moment. And there's the tendency, oh, come on, say what you were going to say. You know? But you know, it wasn't anything wholesome. And the sense of just stopping is inspiring. Seeing the restraint, just such a simple thing like that, is inspiring. Never mind when we manifest non-harming, when we manifest even generosity or compassion. So here, when you don't act out, that's really purifying the intensity. Another way that I think I I consider part of sila is non-acting, is restraint at the sense doors. So, for example, many people talk about this. When you're walking around and you see that you're say the comparing, right, the mana, but they're seeing and the unpleasant and then the, uh, the whole judgment comes up and the negativity and then you're negative back at yourself and you've really been getting caught in it. But then you decide to bring restraint to the sense door. By restraint, I don't mean walking around blindfold, 
But somebody did that here once, a friend years ago. He spent three days walking around here blindfolded when he was on retreat. Okay, that doesn't really, you know, solve anything. (laughs) That could have been interesting. But restraint can be first we just choose not to look around. Just very simply. That's not out of fear, not out of negativity, but out of, you know, it's like similar to wise speech. Just don't feed the seeing because the mindfulness isn't strong enough right now to just see it and not react. So don't feed it. Or right at the seeing, you bring satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, right to the point of seeing. Oh, seeing, just seeing is like this. But you have to have some mindfulness to do that. Sometimes if there's not enough, but the, the defilements of transgression, you just have a feeling if you see that person again, you're going to go trip them. Then you just, you know, restrain at the sense doors. You don't look. That actually can be wholesome, you know. You don't have to think, I'm so hopeless. I should be in Nibbana and instead I'm just trying, you know, not to push somebody. But you're making the choice. You're making the choice not to do that. Notice that. This is serious stuff. I don't know. If you guys <laughs> Again, noticing the wholesomeness that comes from non-harming behavior, from restraining, acting. This is from the, the Buddha. For a person endowed with virtue, the non-harming behavior, sila, there is no need for an act of will may freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue. In other words, when we don't act on the kalashas, when there's a sense of restraint, you can actually feel and appreciate the wholesomeness of freedom from remorse. And it's important just like with noticing the mind of non-clinging, to notice those moments of wholesomeness. It brings a real, a real kind of freedom from remorse, a real kind of happiness, and a deeper confidence and trust in your own ability to continue to explore, to con- not have to be afraid when you notice the kalash is coming, but that you can really start to meet it with more strength, with more wisdom. A friend uh, and I once... I've used this story before too, but it was funny. A friend and we were at visiting Spirit Rock, or maybe I was teaching there, I don't know. But we went down to the bookstore, which if you've ever been there, it's like got seven million things in it, books and statues and jewelry and God knows what. It's like you think you spend hours going through it. But I knew I wanted one particular little statue I had seen. And the friend I was with had sometimes done volunteer work in the bookstore. So she knew, because it wasn't on display, it's a, it's a help yourself place. There's not someone um, serving you there. So she knew where in, in the back room, the big closets, and she knew where to, how to open the closets and which closet had statues and where I could find it. So the two of us were opening the closet. And it's like, you know, floor to ceiling, row after row after row, hundreds of little statues. So we were, you know, piling through the thing, taking the ones out there. The one I wanted was in the back, small like this. So as we were doing it, we each picked up a, a, different, a different statue, and they're made of some kind, I don't know what they're made out of, but I picked one up and it had a little, a little sword, and I barely touched it and the sword broke. I thought, uh-oh. And then my friend, at like a second later, the same thing happened to her. She picked up another one, the sword broke, and we both looked at each other, and we, we, we went over this later. We just looked at each other. We both had the thought went through each of our minds. We could put it back and no one would know. <laughs> but it just went through. And neither of us had the slightest impulse to actually act on that thought at all. So, you know, oh, uh-huh, we have to go take it to Marianne. We're going to have to pay for it. And, uh, yeah. So we did. And, like, you know, we went to Marianne's our friend, but she runs the bookstore. And we were like two little bad schoolgirls going and broke the statue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she, she just said, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. We just glue it back together, sell it at half price. No problem. <laughs> and we talked about it later. And we both felt so happy at that sense of confidence that there was no way 
either of us had, would have the slightest inclination to actually try and act on, you know, that, you know, aversive or, or greedy thought or whatever it was. So that sense of freedom from remorse, but actually appreciating kind of the confidence that that quality of greed or whatever is getting less strong, a little more transparent, not so much running the show. It gives you confidence to keep on exploring, you know, in other aspects of your life. It's not personal, but it's uh, really kind of happiness producing. So noticing that. Not only the kalatia, but the absence, the effect it has. The second level is called uh, obsessive torments. You can figure out what that one is, right? You've all been having a lot of fun with obsessive torments here. So that's, you're not acting out on greed or hatred or confusion, but the mind, you know what the mind's doing. I am so useless. This is so horrible. That person is driving me crazy. I don't mean just it it comes and goes, but you know when you're really spinning in a a deep habit. And it's the suffering's obvious, right? You don't have to tell you. But whether it's that that self-judging or it's that Vipassana vendetta and you're just lost in thoughts of revenge and aversion and what can you do and self-hatred or greed. Greed can be incredibly painful. Have you noticed that? It can be so strong. And so these are called the obsessive uh, torments, just this spinning. And we're protected from that when there's um, a unification of collectedness in the mind, the samadhi, when the mind is enough collected that the hindrances don't really get in. It really feels like a, a protected space. Sally gave a, a whole talk about samadhi, that kind of the shamatha where you're really um, cultivating collectedness of mind. And that's part of what is so beautiful and uplifting when the mind is really focused in, in one um, object because it's so co- collected that greed, hatred, confusion aren't really arising at that point. You know? And so that's one of the ways we get sucked in and want to really you know, have that. You think it's a great state, but notice the, the coolness or just appreciating a moment of what the pure mind feels like. But it doesn't only have to be with shamatha, with one-pointed concentration. There's the whole Kanaka Samadhi that we talk about, the moment-to-moment-to-moment, where, I don't have to say what it is, we've talked about it the whole time, but the mindfulness is steady, the collectedness, the steadiness of the mind can get very stable. And that's when uh, Sayada Upandita used to talk about Vipassana jhanas. He was really talking about a level of stability in the observing mind that had that kind of equal quality of um, protection at that time from the kalashas arising. So you can be really, really steady with whatever's occurring. <laughs> Steady, whether you're using the noting or just the moment-to-moment mindfulness. And whatever's occurring, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it doesn't matter. And even if what you're noticing is an unpleasant thought, an unpleasant thought and aversion starts to arise, but the mind is so steady that it notices it and then it just goes. There's not space for the kalashas to really get in at that time. It feels like a real protection. Temporary, conditioned. But again... Not to hold on to it. If, you, if our mind makes this a space that we're supposed to get to because this is the place of safety, then we're missing the point because that's just a constructed space. It's useful first to steady the mind because when the mind is free from kalatia, we can appreciate that coolness, can come to understand how that feels and trust it more but not to hold on to a constructed state that is somehow going to protect you because you just stay there. That's not really how wisdom is going to arise. It's how craving is going to arise. But the, the protectedness of samadhi is, whichever way, in one-pointed or in kanaka samadhi, just again, let yourself feel when there's the steady noting and things are going steady, we, we tend to get so focused on the object 
but notice what's the quality in the mind that's observing. If you're noticing the seven factors or any one of them, also notice that that's the absence of kalatia at that time. Familiarize yourself, really trust that, just that sense of purity or ease or however it feels. There's lots of different ways. It strengthens the confidence. It helps us really appreciate. And then when the craving comes in and we start to make it the thing that we got to aim for, it's all the more obvious. The craving is all the more obvious. And so then if we're really having this commitment, great, I want to explore the absence of craving, the coolness. Now here's the craving, great, this is the thing to explore now. Honestly, I mean, I really mean that. I'm not just saying it. Okay, cravings like this. See how it behaves. See how it destroys the ability to recognize the radiant nature of mind. Then the third aspect is called the, the latent, the latent torments or the uh, you know, kind of underlying. It's described as a, a seed that if it's given the, the proper conditions to sprout, it'll sprout. So like the example I gave of, of that person walking by being so mindful and then suddenly the hand reached out and grabbed. There was just that moment. Mindfulness went away, craving came up, boom, acted on it, right? Quite a few people have said, I'm making this up, but kind of pastiche, but again, you're walking, you're really mindful, you're walking out of the hall, you're really present, you're really steady, you're noticing what's going on, you're starting towards your walking place, then all of a sudden, you find yourself like rushing and almost pushing somebody aside to get to your walking place, and you go, whoa, how did that happen? You know, how did that happen? I was so mindful. Uh, Apparently not in that moment. You know, what are the conditions? You get interested rather than berating yourself. Mindfulness went away. There was a sight. Somebody getting close to my walking place. You know, sudden craving came up and unnoticed in one second. You know, you're shoving somebody away and running down. Then you get there. (laughs) Probably nobody noticed that little moment, right? But this is what's called the latent, you know. And we, that's there for all of us. But they only arise when the conditions come together to allow for the arising. I just want to say it doesn't mean that sitting down there in the middle of your chest, there's all this gunk that's just sitting there and it's always there, but you just don't see it. But it's really you down there. Not, okay. Just given certain conditions, Lack of mindfulness, pleasant craving will come. Lack of mindfulness, unpleasant aversion will come. But the more we're practicing with this, the less strong these habits get. Every moment of mindfulness is weakening the habit. Latent, greed, hatred, and delusion, the Buddha said, are abandoned not by acts, but by wisely seeing. Wisdom, panya, is what uh, really uproots the latent defilements. That is really the subtle level that we have the opportunity to explore here in a long retreat that is really more accessible to us to explore in a long retreat than maybe in daily life. Although it is accessible in daily life when we get familiar with it. So an example of how panya uproots in the moment is really... The same thing with, say, the, the seeing and the comparing and the unpleasant sight and the self-judgment, the aversion. So when there's, when there's steady mindfulness, say, of concentration, so you can be walking and you're really steadily noting, so there's the protection of, of the concentration. There can be walking, you're aware of seeing, you recognize unpleasant thought, you recognize comparing come, but the mindfulness keeps going on and the obsessive thoughts about it just don't start. Because there's so much steady mindfulness and concentration, it doesn't have room. But you have the sense that if you let up on the concentration and mindfulness, those thoughts would blossom real easy, right? You're not holding it out of fear. This is steady, but it's not uprooted. Then there can be another moment, and this is panya, of the latent ones. And people have have described this, where the same scenario, 
you're walking, there's the seeing, the comparing starts, and, but there's enough, suddenly there's just wisdom in the mind. It doesn't go to aversion, and people have described this. Oh, comparing. Everything's changing. What on earth? Who's comparing what to who? It doesn't make any sense. And it's not an intellectual thing. It's a sudden seeing. It's like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. So the aversion makes no sense, the comparing makes no sense, and the whole thing just dissolves. Have you ever had that experience? Yes, yes, you have. I know some of you have. But you may not recognize it. You think, oh, thank God. Then you think, well, that's okay, done with that one, right? Now we're over mana, we're over conceit now, no more comparing is going to happen. That was a moment. <laughs> but important in that moment to recognize because it is really gone in that moment. Or, you know, when you want, you're craving for something, going down to the walking place and you start to put, you go, it doesn't matter where I walk. The craving doesn't make any sense at all. It's just creating suffering and it just vanishes in a moment. That's how Panya, in the clear seeing, that's how wisdom sees how things really are in a moment when there's not kalesha in the mind. And then craving, aversion, comparing, it just doesn't make any sense. And that's the abandonment that comes from wisdom. It's not like some kind of rigid, I can't, you know, i got to shut everything out. It's really the wisdom does the work. It's not an act of will. It's nothing personal. But recognize and appreciate when there's moments like that. Because this is what, again, will strengthen the confidence, the faith, that gives us the energy to come back and be mindful, be present in the next moment, even if it's a difficult moment. To show up again without, oh no, I thought I had it and now it's over and then you just want to give up. No, okay, right, I really saw how that moment of pure heart-mind, in that moment, Kalesha doesn't make sense. Wow, okay, let me see now. I'm wanting it back. Let's see how wanting's working in this moment. It really strengthens the wisdom factor. And these three work together. You know, Sometimes the level of sila is the, the place that we need to work. Restrain at the sense doors. That's, the kalashas are so strong, that's what we need to do. Great. And then it can lead to the steady mindfulness, and then it can lead to wisdom. And then the wisdom can strengthen the faith. And again, we might be back at the place where we're needing the sila, but they kind of circle around and support and strengthen each other. So when you get us talking with a friend about this the other day, when you start to feel here four or five weeks into the retreat and one particular really painful personal pattern is coming up that you've seen, you know, 10 million times, right? 10 million times. You really know it. And you've gone through all these different phases I was describing, even including you saw it clearly with wisdom and it went away, and now it's arising again. And it can be easy to think, all of this work and it's still here, how am I ever going to get rid of it? And we just notice this presence rather than noticing how the habit has been getting weaker, more purified through all these different aspects. Noticing when you're now using sense restraint instead of just feeding the seeing and getting lost in the reactivity. That you do that so much of the time that the whole pattern arises much less than it ever used to. Or when the anguish, the pain of it comes, instead of just getting lost in it, there's enough steadiness of mindfulness and concentration that your attention can really rest compassionately with the pain and be with that. And the, the practice keeps going on really steadily. And then how there are times when it just starts in the mind, oh yeah, there's that obsessive thought, and it just drops away. And then it's important to notice that all of these are happening, and that the pattern is, kind of as one Tibetan teacher said once, it's like you have a piece of cloth and you keep washing it, washing it, and slowly it gets more transparent. First you can't see through it at all, it's just so solid, the pattern. But then you can start to see, you know, a little bit of shadow and light through it. You wash it, you wash it, you wash it. And then it's even more and more threadbare, and you can start to see some forms. You wash it, you wash it, you wash it. 
and it starts to get some little holes and it gets, you know, more and more clear and soon, not soon, okay, not soon, but (laughs) at some point it's just kind of holding together with little threads, you know, and it's more and more clear. So our job is to notice that purification process. Don't just keep focusing on, look at that thread, it's still there. You know, it's still there, this is hopeless. And not noticing actually how much it's been weakening. So, okay. So when wisdom is not available, and there's times wisdom isn't available, all the other ways the Buddha taught are also ways to help us continue to shift the habits. This is from Ajahn Pasano. It is helpful to recognize the tendency that good qualities foster further good qualities so that we can nurture the appropriate causes for the results we are seeking. Otherwise, we may want to experience the fruits of the practice before the ripening has fully taken place. Does that ring a bell? And we don't know when the ripening has taken place. But we can look and see what's going on here and now in this mind and then use the appropriate support for shifting the habit. So, for example, when we realize we're really blinded by ill will, the aversion is too strong, you're drowning in it, then all these um, tools that we've been talking about these weeks, that's when these are supportive, not to run away, but to change the habit. Sayadaw Utejaniya talks about when we're blinded by ill will or greed or confusion, before you start trying to fix the environment, recognize the quality of really strong kalatia in the mind, and then he calls it refresh the awareness. When we talk about then change the channel, bring your awareness to something neutral, it isn't helpful to drown in the difficult state. We've said this again and again. You might be bringing it to a neutral object. To So say, you know, when you have pain in your knee and we say go to hearing because you're just getting lost in aversion. Refresh the awareness. It's not running away. But this is also in life, not just in retreat. So when, for example, um, Oh, just you're too caught in aversion and you notice that the, the mind keeps going to the negative. Use some of the um, tools, for example, that Jaya, Jaya talked about the other night, where we consciously tune into the lovely, not as a running away, but refreshing the awareness so that we can shift the habit, purify in that moment the habit of aversion. When it gets so the mind gets balanced, You can let go of looking to the lovely. You don't want to look at the lovely so much that it turns into just total greed, running around only looking for pleasant. But it can be really useful. This is one of the ways we use practicing the Brahma Viharas. Not as a running away, "Uh uh-oh, there's a version of that person, let me send metta. But when we see that the mind is just getting somehow a version, for example, or greed, either one, is just taking over, and you're recognizing that's happening, and you're seeing The mindfulness isn't strong enough right now. It's not about sila. I'm not acting on it, but it's just taking over obsessive, for example. Then you can change the channel to bring in one of the Brahma Viharas, if that's possible. Or in daily life, when we feel like we just can hardly even touch meditation, what about how can I possibly purify practicing dana, which Jaya talked about last night. This is really a beautiful practice of purifying the heart because it's of, of intention, not about what you give, but the intention of joyful opening the heart and mind from clinging, whether it's clinging to time or clinging to an idea or clinging to money or whatever. It's this intention of open-hearted sharing is an act, an internal act of shifting, purifying the habit of greed into the openness of renunciation and generosity. It's a beautiful practice. I see it a lot in Burma. It's really in in much of the Buddhist culture there. And it brings a kind of a happiness that's really important then to feel, 
to let yourself feel what that purification, that happy quality of mind feels like. Working with patience, working with all of the paramis that Bonnie, I know she talked mostly about patience, but all the paramis. There's times when you just say virya, the parami of energy, when you just notice you're just slumping around and you have no energy and you could care less and you're just, you know, you think, you know what? I could find a way to just bring up a little bit of energy. Just not in a negative way, but in a way that's just shifting the habits, wholesome. We can really work, use all these tools in our life. So Donna, big, Sila, big, Bhavana, especially using the Brahma Viharas in our life when the, the concentration the steadiness and the wisdom isn't available. And then another thing, the last thing I'll say I use a lot from the Tibetan tradition, but sometimes just consciously shifting the attitude with which we're doing things, with which we're doing activities, you know, can really change the sense of the action. So the way that uh, Mingyur Rinpoche talks about it, say, Intention, a conscious intention of wholesomeness can transform a neutral activity, or I would say even an activity where we're feeling a little, you know, a little negative or a little have to do it, can transform it into wholesomeness, into generosity, into compassion. So, for example, when you're doing anything, when you're, when you're washing yourself here, or when you're doing your work meditation, and if you catch yourself just going, ah, oh, i got to do this, you know, even not in a hurry, but just kind of blah, blah, I'm sick of doing this. I don't know, are you home? You're brushing your teeth. I'm going to brush my teeth again. Sankara dukkha, every day, <laughs> brush your teeth, wash your hands. You know, and you can just feel that little bit of, you know, subtle kalesha. Shift the awareness, shift the intention. Like uh, Minger would, would, would say, so when you're washing your hands, something like, may, may this help to cleanse the, the hands and the minds of all beings. When you're, you know, making some food, may, may this food serve to strengthen my body so that I may, you know, act out of benefit for all beings. Not a should, but a really changing from just neutral or even a little bit negative or a little bit greedy to wholesome. And if you keep thinking of that and doing it, it really has a, quite a profound effect on shifting the habits, on purifying the habits. The one example Mingyur gave that I like the most for sleeping. So this is great. So you go to bed at night with the mind of bodhicitta, thinking, may I aspire that my sleep may be the cause of increased capacity to help all beings attain enlightenment. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, you go to sleep, and while you're sleeping, you're actually, you know, just before you go to sleep, you're purifying your habits of mind just by shifting the intention. It's a wonderful way to go through life. Not that I go through life like that all the time, but whenever I remember it, it makes one feel so happy. And that happiness is a sign of the wholesome. And it really is how we affect all beings. So this this working on purifying our habits in all aspects, whatever we're doing in our life, from the most subtle wisdom to really quite broad, just holding an intention while you do the dishes, may it be for the benefit of all beings. But it does somehow affect everyone we come in contact with. I mean, the, all the, the beauty and the suffering in the world, it starts in our own hearts, doesn't it? I just want to end with a, Quotation from Eleanor Roosevelt that I saw in, um, in Atlanta. There's a relatively new museum, the Museum of Civil and Human Rights, which I was visiting last year with, with my family. And it's quite a moving museum because Atlanta was the heart of where uh, Martin Luther King lived. So it was really the first two floors, really a whole history of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, that period. Really well done, very moving. And then on the top floor was uh, of human rights. And so they, it was smaller part, but just of different um, genocides and human rights abuses that have taken place and that are even taking place now. And I got this one quotation from Eleanor Roosevelt from that, which to me, this applies to 
it inspires me to just continue to have that willingness to see what's going on in my mind and heart, to meet it with um, compassion when I can, with interest always, and with the confidence and trust that whatever tool is available to help purify, that's where we need to be. There's not some that's lesser and some that's better. So from Eleanor Roosevelt. Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person. And then without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we'll look in vain for progress in the larger world. The world of the individual person. That's us, where it all starts. So thank you for your patient attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.